this morning as we work our way through Second Thessalonians, we come to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And um, so we've got two more weeks here in Second Thessalonians, and then, Lord willing, I'm going to start a short series on the church. And then, well, I may brave uh, going into the life of Moses. That's what I'm thinking of doing after the series on the church. A little intimidating because there's so much there, but uh, I've wanted to do that for a long time, so I think I'm going to jump in and hope the Lord holds us up (laughs) through that. Um, and then tonight at six, we're going to continue the Wayne Grudem DVD series, and he's going to be talking about what our justification and adoption that'll be in here at six. Um, is college group meeting tonight? No college groups on a buy until spring break, I guess. So let's read. I'll read. You can follow um, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5. Paul says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you're doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. It's always cute to uh, listen to the prayers of little children as you tuck them in bed at night and often... uh, Kids will make kind of these general sweeping catch-all prayers that go something like, you know, God bless mommy and God bless daddy and God bless all my brothers and sisters and God bless all the missionaries. Amen. And we may chuckle, but yet I'll bet a lot of us sound kind of like that in our prayers. Uh, It takes a little bit of work to get more specific and it's just a little easier to kind of let God sort it all out and say, God bless all the missionaries. Amen. Uh, I'm done with it. and Let's move on. Uh, I confess, sometimes my prayers are of that nature. Now, in our text, the Apostle Paul gives us two specific requests that we can pray for missionaries and other Christian workers. In fact, we can pray them for one another. And what he's saying here is that he wants prayer for the word of the Lord to spread and then that the Lord's people, relying on his faithfulness, will stand firm in him in the spiritual battle. Paul was writing to new converts who were going through intense persecution. And, in, and persecution is hard, whether you're new or older in the Lord, of course. Uh, besides that, as we've seen, there were some false teachers who were spreading uh, spiritually damaging teachings in the church. And so, in light of that, here's kind of the flow of Paul's thoughts here. After, remember last time, we saw up in verse 15 of chapter 2, he commands them to stand firm, and now he directs them to, to be praying for the gospel to spread through him and through others. Uh, they all needed God's protection from evil men, 
And then he stresses the Lord's faithfulness along with the need for the church's continuing obedience. And then finally asks the Lord to direct their hearts into God's love and the example of Christ's steadfastness who, as you know, obeyed God through all the sufferings that he endured for us. Uh, As you get that overview, that's kind of a healthy way to deal with trials your own trials, or maybe to help others who are going through trials. During trials, we tend to focus on ourselves, but it's helpful to get your focus onto others and onto the Lord, um, to pray for those who are serving in difficult places. When I read Voice of the Martyrs and those kind of magazines, I realize I don't have it too badly here, really. I'm uh, pretty comfy Compared to some, this last issue was on our brothers and sisters in North Korea. What a nightmare of a place to live. So get your focus on others, and then get your focus on to the Lord and his faithfulness, his love, his example of obedience that he set for us when he endured the cross. So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, Paul is saying, pray For the word of the Lord that it will spread and that those who proclaim it will be protected so that the word of the Lord will continue to spread. That's the idea of the first two verses. First of all, Paul says, pray that the word of the Lord will spread through the gospel being received. Notice again verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. Paul's finally is kind of like a lot of preachers finally. It doesn't mean you can expect the sermon will be over momentarily. Uh, Paul prays or says finally in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, and then he goes on for two more chapters, does the same thing in Philippians 3, uh, and here he's going to go on for another 17 verses, but The phrase means more, as far as the rest is concerned, or uh, in addition. And when he's asking prayer for himself here, Paul is focused not just on his own personal safety, but he wants the gospel to spread and God to be glorified as it happened in uh, Thessalonica. Here's Paul, veteran apostle, Uh, a man who has suffered much for the gospel, and he's writing to pretty new Christians. And it seems to me telling that he says, I need you guys to pray for me. Paul knew that he needed the prayers, even of the newest believers, and he didn't assume that his impressive gifts would carry the day or that, you know, his eloquence is going to result in in success, he he realized he had to depend on the Lord in prayer. And, of course, we all need that same dependence. Now, when people respond positively to the gospel, then they glorify the Lord who gave that gospel to us. And so, verse 1, as you think about it, is really asking these people to pray the Lord's Prayer, the first part of it. Um, on behalf of Paul and his fellow missionaries. In the Lord's Prayer, you know, begins, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means may your name be set apart as 
sacred and glorified. And here Paul's praying that the word of the Lord will be glorified. And then that prayer continues, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, It's a prayer that the word of the Lord will spread. And so verse 1 is really uh, teaching them to pray the Lord's prayer. Uh, Several other things here to note about Paul's request. Uh, First of all, notice that the gospel is not a message that Paul or the other apostles made up themselves. It is the word of the Lord. That means it comes from the Lord. It is centered on the Lord who gave it to us. The gospel is the message that the eternal Lord of glory, Jesus, took on human flesh, that he lived a perfect life, that he suffered and died in our place, bearing the punishment we deserve for our sins. And thankfully, He did not remain in the grave, but God raised him from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And the good news of the gospel, the gospel means good news, the good news part of it is this, that God offers forgiveness of all our sins and eternal life as a gift. That's just unbelievable. A gift to sinners who simply receive it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to prove ourselves. We just receive it as a gift. A second thing to note here is that in whatever culture people respond to the gospel, their lives are demonstrably changed. Paul says, just as it did also with you. How did he know that the gospel had been glorified in them? Well, he saw the change in their lives. Back in 1 Thessalonians 1, he said, we see that you turned from your idols to the living and true God to serve him and to wait for his son from heaven. And so there was this observable change in these formerly pagan people when they met Christ. And that's true in whatever culture you go in, whatever time you go, when the gospel takes root in a life, there's demonstrable change. And if someone says, well, I believe in Jesus and there's no change at all, then you have to kind of wonder, well, do you really believe in Jesus? Because that is God changes your heart. A third thing to note is the prayer, uh, the prayer Paul is asking for here is that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. And the um, marginal reading there, you'll notice the literal reading is that the word will run and be glorified. And Paul may have had in mind Psalm 147, verse 15, that says, He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. Paul was writing this from Corinth. And Corinth was the home of the Isthmian, that's a hard word to say, Isthmian Games. Kind of like our modern Olympic Games. And so Paul may have had in mind this athletic contest where the winner gets crowned and he gets the glory. He won the race kind of thing. And what Paul is praying or wants them to pray is that the word of the Lord will win the hearts of people so that the Lord who sends it forth is going to get all the honor and glory. And for that to happen, of course, the Lord has to bless his word as it goes forth. As you think about this prayer, um, some folks say 
that God is not able to save people. It's up to their free will. If that's the case, then why pray that the word of the Lord will run and be glorified? God would be in heaven saying, yeah, I sure wish it would too. Not much I can do about that, though. Uh, It has to be God who opens blind eyes, who raises the dead, God who favors his word with blessing so that it takes root in hearts that people are drawn to Christ. And so here's Paul, and if there was ever a gifted preacher, it was Paul, and he knows, I can't see any progress in the gospel unless God causes the word to run and be glorified. And so he says, please pray for that. And we should pray for our city that God would work in our city to open hearts to the gospel and that we would have opportunities to share it. Uh, The fourth thing to note here is Paul saw no contradiction then between the doctrine of election and the need for evangelism and prayer for the success of the gospel. We saw up in verse um, uh, 13, the doctrine of election. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And here, just a few verses later, Paul mentions prayer and evangelism. You know, sometimes people will say, well, if God predestines all who are going to be saved, then why pray? Why evangelize? You know, it's all going to happen, right? Wrong. Wrong. God ordains the means as well as the ends, and the means that people get saved is we share the gospel prayerfully, and God opens hearts. And uh, so God has chosen many to be saved. But the fact is they come to salvation through the prayerful proclamation of the gospel all around the world. And it's a misunderstanding to think somehow we're changing God's mind when we pray. Prayer is a mystery where God has ordained something, but we pray it into happening. And I can't explain that, but that's how God does it. Here's Paul, and he's writing this from the rough very pagan city of Corinth. It was even legendary in in those times for being this, you know, kind of like the Las Vegas of, of Greece. It was really out there and evil. And he was fearful. And Paul was thinking about leaving Corinth because he'd been beat up a lot of times and he's kind of getting tired of getting beat up. And so he's thinking about leaving. And then one night, the Lord graciously appears to Paul in a vision. And here's what he says to him. This is in Acts 18, 9 and 10. He says, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. And then this wonderful promise for I am with you. That is our hope that the Lord is with us. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. And then the Lord adds this insight, for I have many people in this city. Now, Paul didn't know that. You can't go around, lift up their shirt tail and say, yeah, he's elect, you know. No, he didn't know that. The Lord knew that. And he says, I've got many in this city. And so Paul stayed there for 18 months preaching the word and the church in Corinth was born and grew. Later, Paul explained this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake 
of those who are chosen, that is, for the elect, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So God has chosen some. Paul had to suffer and preach and be faithful, and those chosen came to eternal glory through faith in Christ. And there's no contradiction in those two things. And then finally notice, for the word of the Lord to spread and be glorified. Uh, The word that spread has to be the true gospel and not a perversion of it. And as our New Testament shows, from the very earliest time, Satan infiltrated the churches with false gospels. Gospels that are really bad news because people believe them thinking it'll get them to heaven. They die and they don't go to heaven because they believed a lie. And as we saw in chapter 2, the Antichrist will come on the scene and people will believe the lie and end up coming into judgment. Uh, It happened all over. The book of Galatians written to the churches of Galatia. The Judaizers followed Paul into those churches and they said, and, and Satan's always so subtle with this. He said, look, yeah, Paul did it right. He gave you the gospel. Just one little slight thing we would tweak. And that is that in addition to believing in Jesus, you also need to be circumcised and keep the Jewish law. That's all. And Paul came down on that false teaching incredibly hard. In Galatians 1, 8 and 9, he says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. The word means let him be damned. As we've said before, so I shall say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now, Satan is not let up. There are many false gospels out there today. I just got an offer this week from John MacArthur for a new book that he has written. And in the letter explaining the book, he said uh, he never dreamed when he began 50 years ago that his entire ministry would be spent defending the gospel among evangelicals. But he said that's what has happened. And there are many false gospels, you know. Believe in Jesus and he'll give you health and wealth. That's a false gospel. He may give you martyrdom. Ask our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. You know, or believe in Jesus and this is all. Be baptized. I've been contending with a Church of Christ brother who, who uh, a pastor I should say, who... Uh, contends with me that you have to be baptized to be saved. And I've said to him, that's like saying you got to be circumcised to be saved. It's no different. You're just adding to the gospel of faith in Christ. Or believe in Jesus and add your good works and you'll pile up enough merit and soon the scale will tip and you'll get out of purgatory. That's a false gospel. The gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Then baptism, good works follow. But faith in Christ is the gospel and we have to contend for that in our day. So Paul here first asked prayer that the gospel 
will run and be glorified the true gospel of Christ and have results in hearts. So we should pray that for ourselves, for our church, for our missionaries, that the word of the Lord will run and be glorified. And then secondly, Paul says, pray that the word of the Lord will continue to spread through God's protection of those who proclaim it. Verse 2, he says, pray that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. And then he adds, for not all have faith. Now, as I said earlier, I don't think Paul was so much trying to save his own skin as he wants to see the gospel proclaimed. And if gospel proclaimers are martyred, they're not going to be as effective as if they're still alive. Now, granted, Paul evangelized the Praetorian Guard when he was in prison in Rome, and the blood of the martyrs has led many people to Christ. As you read their stories, you hear about how the martyrs uh, died in faith. Many have come to faith through that, but at the same time, uh, they can be still effective if they are protected. And so there's nothing wrong with praying for protection from persecution for the Lord's people, especially who are in hostile areas. Um, Notice the prominence of the Lord in our text in verses 1 through 5. In verse 1, it's the word of the Lord. Then in verse 3, the Lord is faithful. And in verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord. And then in verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts. And in times of persecution, times of trial, it's important to remember that Jesus is the Lord, that he is the sovereign God of the universe. And that means no one can harm you, no one can stop the gospel through you, unless it's God's good and loving purpose for his glory. Now, who were these perverse and evil men that Paul refers to? Well, scholars differ. Some scholars say that it was the uh, unbelieving Jews in Corinth and in Thessalonica. Um, In Acts chapter 18, it reports how the Jews rose up against Paul. This is after the Lord promised no one will hurt you. But they still rose up against Paul. They dragged him before the proconsul. They accused him of all sorts of false charges, persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. The proconsul couldn't care less. He ignored them. So then they grabbed Sosthenes, who was the leader of the synagogue, a Jewish man who had come to faith. Paul introduces 1 Corinthians. Paul and Sosthenes, our brother. And they started beating him in front of the proconsul. And the proconsul couldn't, again, didn't care about it and ignored them. So Paul may have been referring to the unbelieving Jews. Other scholars, however, argue that he was referring to false believers within the church. They were either promoting false doctrine or maybe their lives did not back up their profession of faith. And if you've been around the church very long, you know that often the greater damage is done from within rather than those outside the church, uh, from people in the church who create dissension, uh, false teaching, all kinds of problems. Uh, Jesus warned in Matthew 7.15 about false prophets, he said, who come into the flock 
disguised as sheep, but he says inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And Paul, in Acts 20, 29 and 30, warned the Ephesian elders and said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then this shocking word, from among your own selves. This is among the leaders, the elders in Ephesus. Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his uh, ministers, his servants, as servants of righteousness. So the battle that we are fighting is real. And so the takeaway from verse 1 and 2 is pray for everyone in this church, for yourself, for everyone else. Pray for all our missionaries that they will have opportunities to share the gospel and that God will anoint the word with power, that hearts will be opened, that people will come to faith and pray that God will protect us and especially our missionaries who are in very dangerous places. Um, Protect his church from within, from without, so that the gospel will again go forward. And as we'll see in verse 3, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. There is this unseen enemy that is opposing the gospel, and that's where the battle really lies, which is why we must pray. Also in our text, in the second section, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, pray that the Lord's people, relying on his faithfulness, will stand firm in him in the spiritual battle. So Paul is turning here from the faithlessness of these evil, perverse, and evil men in verse 2 to the faithfulness of our wonderful Lord in verse 3. And that's a theme Paul often mentions. Now, Paul has been asking in verse 2 prayer for his own and his co-workers' protection. So you would expect that he would continue in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful and he'll strengthen and protect us from the evil one. But rather, he says that the Lord will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And John Calvin points out that that reflects Paul's pastor's heart, that he was more concerned, even though he was in harm's way, he was concerned about these young believers, that they would be protected and stand firm in the battle. Now, evil one can also be translated evil, but it's more likely that Paul here is referring to the uh, arch enemy of our souls, Satan himself, the devil. Calvin makes this observation. He says, for it were a small thing to be delivered from the cunning or violence of men if the Lord did not protect us from all spiritual injury. That is, that coming from uh, Satan as well. And so it's a reminder that when the gospel goes forward, there's always a spiritual battle, unseen battle in the heavenlies that we're sometimes just oblivious to. But that's where prayer must come in because Satan is far too powerful for us in our strength. Three things here about relying on uh, the Lord. First of all, relying on God's faithfulness 
is the foundation for standing firm in the spiritual battle. Verse 3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Um, Paul mentioned that back in 1 Thessalonians 5.24 where as these believers were going through persecution, Paul said, faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. You know what a comforting truth that is, isn't it? The Lord is faithful. You remember the story of how Jerusalem fell to Babylon. Israel had been unfaithful to the Lord. The Lord threatened with um, them being taken into captivity. And the prophet Jeremiah witnessed the whole horrifying demise of the country. And Nebuchadnezzar finally came in, his army, and besieged Jerusalem. They destroyed the place, burned the temple, uh, tore down the wall, took most of them. Thousands of Jews were slaughtered. Those who survived, many of them were taken into captivity. It just devastated the entire land. We don't know for sure, but probably Jeremiah is the one who wrote Lamentations. And that five-chapter book, which is largely an acrostic poem, just pours out his overwhelming grief over all this devastation he had witnessed. And then right in the middle of the book, there are these very familiar and well-known verses, but you have to understand the context to appreciate these verses. Lamentations three twenty two through 24 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Amen. Written out of that context. Isn't that a wonderful verse or a bunch of verses? And so when you're under attack, and the attack, thankfully in our day here, isn't physical persecution yet, could be, but you still get attacked. Maybe you're criticized. Maybe you're slandered. Maybe at work your job is threatened because you're a Christian. Uh, All kinds of ways we get attacked. Lean, as Jeremiah did, on the fact God is faithful. He's my portion. He's my hope. I have him. No one can take him from me. That's uh, how we get through those things, knowing he'll work it together for good. Now, Paul assures us that our faithful Lord will both strengthen and protect us. And the Lord here, by the way, is the Lord Jesus. He's referring to Jesus. Think about it. You know, people come around knocking on your door and they try to convince you Jesus is not God. How can Jesus protect and strengthen his people all over the world if he's not God? You know, he he is the Lord God. And Paul says he'll strengthen and protect us. Now, those are wonderful words, but they do raise a problem. And the problem is, well, wait a minute. If the Lord will strengthen and protect his people, 
then why do they suffer horribly in persecution? And why are there martyrs? Well, we need to understand that the Lord's promise for protection is not a guarantee of deliverance from every human enemy. There's an interesting text in Luke 21, 16 through 18, where Jesus says this, But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you'll be hated by all because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. Did you catch that? (laughs) Some of you will be put to death, yet... Not a hair of your head will perish. So he's not talking about protection from death when he says not a hair of your head will perish. I think (coughs) rather he means if we are faithful to the Lord under persecution, even if we suffer a martyr's death, they cannot take our soul from the Lord. We will be with him forever in heaven. You know, Jesus said, "Don't, don't fear those who can kill the body. But they can't touch the soul. But fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. That is God. And there's an interesting text also in Revelation. I'm not going to read it, but you can look it up later. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, where the martyrs in heaven cry out and say, How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? And the Lord says, Hang on, the number isn't quite complete. In other words, the Lord has the exact number of martyrs down on a list in heaven, so to speak. And when that number is complete, he's going to judge all the wicked who have killed those people, and they will receive their eternal reward in heaven. And so the Lord will protect us as we rely on his faithfulness. A second thing to note is that relying on the Lord for ongoing obedience is the framework for standing firm in the spiritual battle. And that's verse 4. He says, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. So Paul isn't confident in them. You know, I know you've got what it takes. No, I'm confident in the Lord in you, is the idea that they will continue to obey what he Commanded. Now, Paul was an apostle, and the apostles had special authority from the Lord not to give suggestions, but commandments. And we have those commandments in our New Testament. And so, in verse 4, Paul is laying a framework for what we'll look at next week as he talks about how do you deal with an unruly member of the church? And he mentions a command in verse 4, and then you'll notice he mentions command in verse 6, and he mentions uh, order, which means commandment, in verse 10. And then again in verse 12, he says, we command and exhort these people to do such and such. So he's laying a foundation here that what these apostles gave to the church was the Lord's commandment. And we have those commandments in our New Testament. It's strange that in our day, there are many professing Christians who, if you say, we must obey the Lord's commandments, say, oh, that's legalism. 
I've been accused of that. Somebody in California years ago told me, you know, you, you preach obedience, and that's legalism. Here's a, a book on grace. Read this. And they gave me Swindoll's book on the grace awakening, as if I was ignorant of grace. And uh, every time I preach obedience, I always preface it by saying, it is God's grace that motivates us to obey him. But nonetheless, preach obedience, that's legalism. And, and we're more prone to follow, follow our feelings in this day and age and, and subjective stuff. I one time had a young lady who told me she was going to marry her unbelieving fiancé. And uh, I, I questioned her on that and said, you know, the Bible says very clearly that you should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Oh, but I've prayed about it and I feel a peace about it. And so she wouldn't listen to what the Bible says very plainly. You can read it, Second Corinthians 6. She, she ignored that and went with her feelings. And that she had supposedly prayed and gotten this feeling of peace. It's kind of like driving on the wrong side of the road, you know, or running red lights. You can do that and you get away with it for a little while. Maybe you get there faster and then you come around a curve and there's a, a big truck coming at you and it's all over. It's pretty messy. The rules of the road are for our good. And if everybody obeyed them, we wouldn't have any accidents. And, and so the same with the Lord's commandments. He doesn't command us to take away our fun or to burden us with, oh man, what a horrible thing that is. He commands us for our good and blessing. And so obedience and you just can't live in disobedience to the Lord. And then you get into the jam. Oh, help, Lord. Save me. Rescue me from this problem. Well, you created the problem by disobedience. Often, then you must suffer the consequence. So ongoing obedience to the Lord then is the framework for helping us to stand firm in the spiritual battle against the evil one. And then finally, asking God to direct our hearts into his love and into Christ's steadfastness, I'm going to call it the fuel for standing firm in the spiritual battle. That's verse 5. Paul prays, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now, when I say fuel, what I mean is that God's love and Christ's steadfastness um, fuel our desire to uh, stand firm when we're under attack. And again, keep in mind the context here. These new believers are under attack both from persecution and from false teaching. And in that context of the spiritual battle, Paul's praying that the Lord will direct their hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And that points us to three things. First of all, when you're in a spiritual battle, ask the Lord to direct your heart. And the word direct there <clears throat> means literally clear away the obstacles or make a straight path. And when you're in a time of attack, confusion often comes in and um, we need God to clear away the obstacles. Paul used the same word in First Thessalonians 3.11 where he Ask that the Lord would direct our way to you. Clear away the obstacles so we have a clear path to come to you. And sometimes, again, 
it's easy to get confused, turn away from the Lord, accept worldly counsel, and that's not good. You, you need the Lord to clear away the obstacles to direct your heart. Now, what does he direct your heart into? Well, in the spiritual battle, then, ask God to direct your heart into the love of, uh, that he has for you. Uh, you know, because often, say you're going through a time of difficulty, the enemy comes right in and starts whispering things like, ha, if God loved you, he wouldn't be allowing this. And he gets you to doubt the love of God. And uh, so you have to come back to the many, many, many promises of God's word that assure us of his love for us as his children and ask him to direct your heart into his love. Don't focus on your situation. Focus on your Savior. And then finally, in the spiritual battle, ask God to direct your heart into the steadfastness of Christ. Now, if you have an old King James Bible, or many, not many, a few commentators interpret the Greek here in verse uh, 5, the last phrase, to mean that we should patiently wait for Christ's return. But I think it's more likely that Paul is praying the Lord will direct our hearts, our focus, Onto the example we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he suffered, he relied on the Father. He was faithful to go to the cross, even though it was so horrible. He, um, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And that example of our Savior's faithful endurance should enable us to endure when we suffer, when we're under attack for the gospel. So instead of just praying, God bless all the missionaries, uh, God bless everyone in the whole world, God bless our church, and all of those kind of general prayers, here are two things you can pray. Pray that the word of the Lord will spread through us and all who are out there spreading it, and that they will be protected so the gospel can continue to spread. Pray that the Lord's people would rely on his faithfulness, his love, and look to the steadfastness of Christ so they can stand firm in the spiritual battle. Um, You can find this on the church website, but I had Linda print up some. They're on yellow paper at the exits. Uh, It's called, What Should I Pray? If you go to the resources section on the website and uh, type that in the search engine, it'll pop right up for you, or you can grab one this morning and Maybe keep one tucked in your Bible. And I've got 20 things there, specific things you can pray for yourself, for your family, for people in this church, for missionaries. Um, So instead of just praying God bless them them all, uh, pray that they would love God more fervently from the heart, that they would realize uh, their present exalted position in Christ that they'll be filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and, and be regular and systematic in reading God's Word and so on. And the list goes on. And so if that's of help to you, you can grab one at the exits. Uh, let's bow in prayer as we conclude. Dear Father, we thank you for your Word. 
that encourages and strengthens us. I know that some of my brothers and sisters are um, going through difficult times, through trials, through temptations, through inner struggles, family conflicts, other kinds of trials, health issues. Father, I pray that in all of that, we would see your great love for us, that we would look to Jesus, who endured such suffering of sinners against himself for our sake, and he was faithful, that we would continue in obedience to you during those times, and Lord, that through us, the gospel would go forward in this community, that people who are living in darkness with no hope would see us perhaps in our trials, having your joy, your peace, and that they would be drawn to the Savior through us, that you would open hearts to the good news of Christ. Lord, I pray if any are here and they don't know Jesus in a personal, saving way, that you would open their hearts even right now to see their desperate need for your forgiveness for their sins to receive the eternal life that you offer as a gift that they would put their trust in Jesus today and we'll give you all the thanks and praise as we see you work in and through us in Jesus name Amen